I'm going to start this episode with a little bit of poetry. August slipped away into a moment in time because it was never mine. Now that was from the quite popular modern day poet Taylor Swift. For you constant listeners who may not know that, as maybe you are more of my age demographic and of my musical taste, not that there is anything wrong with Taylor Swift. I actually saw her perform twice in concert with the kids when they were younger, and I enjoyed both performances. Um, This is, of course, the Far Middle Podcast, and if you found it by accident, please keep listening. I promise you'll be happy that you did. The dedication for this episode, 118, is to a special someone who celebrates a birthday this week in August, the 21st, to be exact. It's one of Ohio's most decorated sports sons and one of the greatest college football players of all time. He's the only, the one and only, player to win not one, but two Heisman trophies in his collegiate career. We're, of course, talking about Ohio State Buckeye legend Archie Griffin. A more fitting moniker would be Ohio legend when you consider he was born in Columbus, played high school football in Columbus, played collegiate football, of course, in Columbus, and played in the pros in Cincinnati for the Bengals. And like I said, Griffin's greatness was concentrated on the college level at Ohio State. He was there from 1972 to 75, won a starting spot as a freshman. That's no small feat. And the start didn't you know, begin with the, uh, the best set of circumstances. His first game as a freshman was the first game of the season. He had one carry, and it resulted in a fumble. But he was off and running literally after that. He set the Ohio State single-game rushing record in the second game of his freshman year, and then he broke his own record his sophomore year. He led the Buckeyes in rushing as a freshman. But boy, his numbers, they really took off when the team went to the I formation for his sophomore year. And Griffin ended up leading the Big Ten in rushing for three straight years. He was the uh, the first player to do so. And he wrapped up his Buckeye tenure with over 5,500 yards rushing, then an NCAA record. And he also rushed for at least 100 yards in 31 consecutive games, an NCAA record. He was a big reason why Ohio State made it to four straight Rose Bowls when he was there. And Griffin is one of only two players, by the way, in collegiate football history to start four Rose Bowl games. The other one, by the way, in case you're wondering, was Brian Cushing. Now, Coach Woody Hayes of the Buckeyes absolutely loved Griffin, and that didn't hurt. Woody famously said about Archie that he's a better young man than he is a football player, and he's the best football player I've ever seen. After his time was up at Ohio State, Griffin entered the 76 NFL draft. He was the first-round draft choice of the Cincinnati Bengals, 24th overall pick, and he played seven seasons in the NFL, all with the Bengals, and got to play in the backfield, interestingly, with his um, college fullback teammate, Pete Johnson, and he also played on the Bengals with his brother, Ohio State uh, alum as well, defensive back Ray Griffin. Um, And I said that his entire playing career was inside the borders of Ohio, but that is not exactly true because Griffin played briefly with the Jacksonville franchise of the USFL, the United States Football League, remember that, after the Bengals and before he hung up the cleats. And the, the nickname of that Jacksonville USFL franchise, I believe, was the Bulls. He remains uh, active with Ohio State and all things Ohio these days. And you don't get more America than Archie Griffin and Ohio. A great dedication for episode 118. 
Time to jump right into the connections um, for the episode. Let's start by thinking about Rose Bowls and Heismans, two things that Archie Griffin knew well, playing in four Rose Bowls, as I said, and winning two Heismans. A school out west that was playing in Rose Bowls just before Griffin showed up at Ohio State was Stanford. And Stanford also had a Heisman winner just before Griffin with quarterback Jim Plunkett. Now, Stanford is, of course, one of the most renowned academic institutions on the planet. It spends billions of dollars on research. And its president, a highly acclaimed neuroscientist and researcher himself, is resigning in a cloud of controversy. Why? Well, it gets interesting, and it hits on many themes that we discuss on a regular basis on the far middle. Mark Tessier-Levine has been president of Stanford since 2016, and I've been somewhat critical of his leadership there in my book, Precipice, and in the chapter in the book on STEM dilution in academia. And my issues in Precipice with the president at Stanford was despite his STEM background, and it's because he made it a point to divert more resources and money and bricks and mortar to humanities and arts on campus than were maybe warranted when objectively assessing the markets and society's demands and needs for technical disciplines these days. I viewed his putting a thumb on the scale to favor the humanities at Stanford as a bit of a betrayal of not just STEM, but also Stanford's mission as a university and of the various stakeholders Stanford is supposed to serve. And I was concerned that focus away from STEM is going to create risk on the quality and integrity of the STEM efforts at Stanford. Now, that critique and precipice a few years back, it looks um, eerily sort of uh, is predicting what's occurred currently in some ways very ironic because of what caused Tessier-Levine's resignation. And it goes back to papers he authored or co-authored the past 25 years. The papers were published in elite scientific journals, and they reported on research he ran in his labs at the time or that he was associated with. Turns out there were serious flaws in how the research data were presented for five papers where he was the lead author and signs of data manipulation on four papers he was also involved with. And of the five he was lead author on and that are in question, Tessier-Levine agreed to retract three of them, and he's going to issue corrections in the other two. Now, his actions to remedy and uh, shut the door on the situation, they're sort of a bit after the horse has fled the barn because the scientific journals have already issued formal editorial expressions of concern on the soon three retracted papers. And the journals are looking into or investigating at least one of the other two papers in question. And Stanford hired a law firm, and they put together an esteemed panel, and they reviewed over 50,000 documents to assess and address the matter of these scientific papers. That Stanford panel found that the president didn't do enough to correct the record when concerns arose, going back in some cases to over a decade. And the panel also found instances of data manipulation by research teams that the president ran back then. Now, Tessier-Levine will remain on the faculty at Stanford after he steps down as president, and he'll continue to conduct research. And let's hope he does a better job on data integrity protections moving forward. At first, he took the position that the accusations would not impact his ability to lead Stanford. But of course, as more truth came out, that position became untenable. And by the way, this story really broke loose with a student reporter at Stanford. An 18-year-old student reporter uncovered the issues with Tessier-Levine, 
the president of one of the most well-known academic institutions on the planet. And that forced the hand of the university to then convene its panel to run the issue to ground, which led to the stepping down. And a student reporter uncovered this, again, not the mainstream media and not all those committees and policies within Stanford. This was daylighted from the inside out. Amazing on one hand, not shocking on the other hand. Oh, in case you are wondering, Stanford does not offer a degree in journalism. The controversy at Stanford, it highlights another connection we can jump to, which interestingly still involves Stanford, but it also ties to a much broader topic that cuts across the entire Western world. So let's spend a few moments talking about science, as well as more specifically, the science as it has come to be known. And there's a big difference between science and the science. The former science, it's got a proud history throughout thousands of years that often finds itself running up against the entrenched interests. Just think of, say, Galileo and the Vatican as an example. The latter, the science, is in many ways those very same entrenched interests attempting to commandeer true science so that it becomes another instrument of force in the arsenal of those in power. So Galileo, he was representing science when he put forth the hypothesis that the earth revolves around the sun, while the Pope and the Vatican, they were representing the science when they insisted that the sun revolves around the earth. And of course, they threw Galileo under arrest. So when someone in elite circles or from the expert class tells you or instructs you to trust the science, how should you interpret that? I would counsel you, constant listener, to be skeptical and wary. And I've got data and experience to back up that counsel. So there's a new study out by a Stanford researcher, not President uh, Tessier Levine, a different researcher at Stanford, that assess the impact that political endorsements for president by supposedly objective and apolitical scientific journals had on those journals' trustworthiness and on the trustworthiness of science in general. So first, a little bit of background. Two of the most well-known science journals in America are Nature and Scientific American, and I'm sure you've heard of one or both of them. Well, both broke tradition for science journals being apolitical and they decided instead to officially endorse Joe Biden for president during the 2020 election. And the journals did not mince words. Nature condemned the Trump administration for its, and I'm using the journal's words here, disastrous response to the COVID-19 pandemic and for accelerating climate change, raising wilderness, fouling air, and killing more wildlife as well as people. Hmm. Now, the basis for any of those accusations? None, of course. And Nature went on with their tirade by saying that President Trump promoted nationalism, isolationism, and xenophobia. And added, by the way, to my great interest, that President Trump discouraged international scientific cooperation, especially with China. Boy, that criticism hasn't aged well, has it, now that uh, China's true intentions are becoming clearer by the day. Nature also said, the President Biden and then candidate Biden was the, I'm using their words again, the nation's best hope to begin to repair this damage to science and to the truth. Now, Scientific American, they weren't as strident as nature with words, but they also, again, endorsed then candidate Biden. 
A Stanford researcher found that these endorsements in blatant political moves did great damage to the reputation of objectiveness that each journal enjoyed. So the study found that if you were, say, a Trump supporter who believed nature was objective before the endorsement, you stood a good chance of not believing in nature's objectivity after the political tirade and the Biden endorsement. In other words, bringing subjective politics into the discussion eroded reputation for objectivity of the journal. That's not good for a scientific journal. And it's worse because there's also a high likelihood that if the reputation of science and scientists in general suffered, not just the reputation, say, of nature or scientific American, with these sort of political machinations and maneuvers, then you really start to see some damage being done to society uh, in general. So the bottom line is that common sense tells us the political endorsements, probably not a good path for building or preserving scientific integrity. There's a big difference between science and political science, right? So this researcher puts out the results of the uh, study. And what does the editorial board of nature do? Doubles down and goes on attack mode and political talking mode once again. And by the way, this is a trend that's getting worse and was not a one-off with the 2020 presidential election or something that correlates only to the uniquely polarizing figure that is Donald Trump. A study of topics in 2022 published in Nature, Science, and Scientific American found that more and more of the content of those journals was politicized. Some of the periods of time in some of these journals showed more political content than scientific content, which is amazing. Now, this is having, as I said, a damaging impact on the reputation of science in America. An early 2021 Pew Research survey found only 29% of Americans say they have a great deal of confidence in medical scientists to act in the best interests of the public. That's not a good situation or outcome. And a year earlier, it was a bit higher at 40%. So it was never high to begin with, say, in 2020, and it fell off significantly in 2021, going from 40% to 29%. So just think of that. We used to present our Fauci focus. I don't know if you guys recall that focus and segment that we had in prior Far Middle episodes. Is this his ultimate legacy with how he handled pandemics and the science associated with it? It would be a sad and sorry legacy at that, would it not? As an engineer, I am a staunch supporter of science and the scientific method. And the thought of the scientific consensus, it makes me twitch, makes me cringe. We've discussed that in past episodes on the far middle. Science isn't about consensus and fitting in. It's about challenging and breaking the consensus for goodness sake. But what's going on with science and how it's been commandeered by political science, that connects us to an even broader theme, and that is institutions being commandeered by the left for ill intention and for nefarious aims. It's what some reference as the inside-out phenomenon. So let me explain that phenomenon using a couple of historical examples. So the first example comes from the great Alexis de Tocqueville when he wrote about soft despotism. That's where government, or the state so to speak, it convinces citizens to give up rights under the cover of doing so in the interests of equality. Individuals end up acting against their own interests by ceding decision-making to the administrative state and a democracy. In the way de Tocqueville put it, using his words, it does not tyrannize, but it encompasses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people. 
till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. Wow. You know, think about those words from 200 years ago. Does that sound just a little bit like America today, or maybe a lot? Now, the second historical example that's helpful on this topic is what occurred in Spain during its civil war in the 1930s. Most people, when you think of the Spanish Civil War, they think of Franco and the right. But, you know, how did they get there? How did Spain get there? Well, it started when the left in Spain, they wised up and they figured out that instead of trying to disrupt and overthrow elections, if the left instead won elections, they could start to change the system to their liking from the inside out, so to speak. That's what they did in Spain in the 1930s creating then the dynamic of soft despotism that the Tocqueville wrote about. Revolution didn't occur in the streets, at least not at that point in time, but instead in the government office and with the bureaucrat. And not illegally at night, so much as with a legal stamp of government edict in daylight. Aided and abetted, of course, by the universities and friendly press and outside influences like the communist and socialist heavyweights of the day. Unions took control of business and industry, the church and religion were attacked, and people with opposing views, they weren't just suppressed, but they were placed under arrest. And that is why science is under siege today, why scientific institutions are now political, and why science is not as trusted as objective anymore by the public. Science is yet another institution that's being turned from the inside out. And once science has turned to leftist sames, it's then a very useful tool or instrument to further the creep and aims of the left itself. That's how science morphs into the science. And that's how we end up living in Orwell's 1984 in America's 2023. Now, none of this turned out well for Spain. And as de Tocqueville had warned, it's not going to turn out well for America if we don't preserve and defend institutions like science from the uh, severe distortions of the left. And that leads us into a connection to the topic of duty or responsibility, to speak truth, to defend facts and science, and to do all those things by engaging in civil public discourse. Now, we all share a responsibility to do so under tenets of our Western Republican democracy, and we do too little of it these days, allowing the mistruths in political science and obfuscation to drive our society where the left wants it steered toward. The duty to engage in such an effort reminds me of that Bible story, Jonah and the whale. So first, to start, I'm going to say I'm not a biblical expert or scholar by any measure. So I'm treading carefully here. I might, might know enough to be mildly dangerous when it comes to the Bible but I, like most of us, I suppose, know the Jonah and whale story. And I guess it should be Jonah and the big fish, not the whale, because I don't think the story ever specifically mentions a whale. So as the story goes, God calls Jonah one day and he tells him to go preach to the town of Nineveh because the people there were being very bad. They were behaving badly. And God was going to take them out unless they changed their ways. Now, Jonah didn't like this idea. In fact, he hated the idea because Nineveh was one of Israel's greatest enemies, and Jonah wanted nothing to do with preaching to them. If anything, Jonah was okay with them being wiped out by God. So Jonah tries to run away in the opposite direction of Nineveh, and he ends up on a boat, and God cooks up a big storm, and the men on the ship decided that Jonah was to blame. 
so they throw him overboard. And as soon as they toss Jonah in the water, the storm stopped. But then here comes a big fish, again, maybe a whale, maybe not, that swallows Jonah. And he's in the belly of this fish for three days. And he spends that time praying to God for help. And God decides to have the big fish throw up Jonah onto the shore of all places right next to Nineveh. Well, now, you know, Jonah's a changed man and he sees it God's way. So Jonah preaches to Nineveh and he warns them to repent before the city is destroyed in 40 days. And the people listen and the city is spared the wrath of God. Now, Jonah gets a bit bitter because God did not destroy the Ninevites, who, again, were his enemy. And he feels as if he doesn't care if he dies. So he sort of loses hope. And God takes Jonah to task for not taking the bigger view and looking to the hundred plus thousand people who lived in a city of Nineveh that were saved because of, of what he did. Okay, so hopefully I didn't butcher the essence of the story of Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish. The point is, what is this story really about? And to me, it's about a higher responsibility to do what's right and to speak truth, particularly to those who may not want to hear the truth. Even if the message is unpopular to the people of Nineveh, the speaker Jonah is not viewed as a friend, or if the result of saving the city is not directly beneficial to Jonah as an Israelite. I see the message of the story being consistent with a duty for advocacy of science prevailing over the science, and science over political science, and science over political correctness, and the duty we all share in defending science in the face of peer pressure or from the crowd, or at least the in crowd. Heck, it's a foundational premise when you think about it of the far middle constant listeners, and it would have saved the president of Stanford from the scientific paper controversy and it would restore confidence of America in science and its institutions, and it would stop the left from turning us from the inside out. And by the way, a question I get all the time from constant listeners is whether the subjects and, and the content of each episode or each connection, whether they reflect feedback from, from others, from listeners. And the short answer is absolutely. And I may not attribute each topic that's spurred by a constant listener's question uh, to that individual person, but trust that a significant portion of each episode's content is from inbounds from people tuning in. So I'd encourage you to, to provide some feedback as well. And our next connection is one such example. So a listener from, I believe, Louisiana asked recently what prediction or call that I made in Precipice that in hindsight was the most spot on. I gave that some thought and my answer ties to, in many ways, the theme of this episode. I discussed in Precipice how many value-creating industries and entities will enable the left to curry favor with it until the left inevitably and eventually turns its gaze towards that entity or industry that fed it. And I discussed at length the, the biggest example being tech and social media in the book and that the left would soon start at some point to change its view of you know, being enabled by big tech and having it viewed as an ally to now instead viewing it as a source to appropriate value from and to feed from. Well, I got that one right. And you're seeing it everywhere today. Despite big tech you know, serving as a willing colluder and collaborator to the left, big tech is increasingly under assault from the left. EU regulators slapping baseless fines on social media giants, US politicians and bureaucrats using big tech as a pinata, to grandstand on and its justification to grow the administrative state's powers with. And now 
that endlessly voracious plaintiff's bar is coming after big tech, undercover, of course, of wanting to protect students. From coast to coast, school boards are listening to pitches from plaintiff bar law firms who are trying to convince the school boards to file lawsuits against social media and app makers for harming the mental health of students and thus causing classroom disruptions and creating educational gaps. In school districts, they are listening, at least some of them are, in heeding the law firm's advice. About 200 school districts are already in lawsuits against YouTube and Facebook and TikTok and just about every other giant social media company that you can think of. And as expected, big tech is going to hinge their defense on being shielded from such liability by what's known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. That was passed in an era when big tech collaborated with big government to shield it from legal liability and grow into the giants that it has become. But that happy time is over, as it always is with the left and its value appropriation. And now these tech giants look more like dinner to entities such as the plaintiff's bar and teachers unions and government bureaucrats, and all of them are hungry all the time. So it's a matter of time before big tech finds itself in the same camp as domestic energy companies and community banks and small business owners and manufacturers in the middle class, which is under siege and desperately fighting every day to hold on to the value that they create for themselves. Should have thought it through, big tech, before you help build the Frankenstein that is now coming for you. Or maybe the tech industry should have read Precipice when it was published to change course before it was too late. Big tech allowed the left inside, and now the left is turning big tech inside out. Yeah, I think as more time passes, that call on big tech currying favor with and helping grow the left, and then the left going after big tech to appropriate value, that was one of the best calls that I made in Precipice. As we look back on on what we've been talking about in this episode, and we start to wind episode 118 down, there is a theme that pervades, and that is the theme of inside out. Sometimes it was about how Archie Griffin would run a play from the inside out to to gain a bunch of yardage uh, for Ohio State. Sometimes it was with discussing how the story of the Stanford presidents playing loose with data broke inside by a student reporter and then to the outside world. Um, Sometimes we were talking in the theme with respect to how the left looks to gain control, not by revolution on the outside, but by winning control of the inside of government and institutions like academia and media and so on, and then turning society from the inside out. And we talked about Jonah, how he found himself inside a giant fish to then get set loose outside to save Nineveh. And finally, we discussed big tech letting the left in and now big tech getting turned inside out. So let's close with talking about a hit single from one of the three most successful performers in terms of sales in the history of rock. And I'm talking about the single Inside Out by Phil Collins from No Jacket Required, which was a a giant album for him uh, back in 1985 as a solo artist. And one of the more tense singles, I think, from Phil Collins, he's usually a pretty happy, upbeat guy, but this this single was a little tense. And by the way, I mentioned um, one of the most successful selling artists of all time. Phil Collins is one of three artists who sold over 100 million records as part of a group. And then he did it again, 100 plus million in sales as a solo act. Now, the other two, can you think of them? Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Paul McCartney with the Beatles, of course. Michael Jackson with the Jackson 5. 
And I know not everyone loves Phil Collins, but no one can objectively deny his ability to produce hit after hit in doing it over the span of decades. And he is a very talented drummer in addition to, uh, to songwriter and singer. And I do think Phil Collins is great. And I also am a big um, fan of Genesis, his band. And you can read a, a commentary I wrote on the theme a few years back at nickdeolius.com under the commentary tab. Uh, the title, if you're looking for it, is Hearing Greatness, Rail Imperial Aerosol Kid. And I'm referencing in the title, the character in the Genesis classic concept album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Give it a read. Tell me what you think. So here's a verse from Inside Out. Now, everybody keeps on telling me how to be. And everybody tells me to do what they say. Oh, I'll help myself. It's up to me and no one else. But till I'm ready, just keep out of my way. Take Phil's lyrics to heart, constant listeners. Don't blindly follow the herd. Think for yourself, bet on yourself, engage, advocate, and let's meet up again in seven days.